Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Sarah Black. And I'm Jeffrey Lilly. And today we are going to be returning to the Salem Witch Trials and talking about some of the theories as to why this whole thing got started. But first, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's not my fault. Uh, Tell him what you did, Jeffrey. I didn't do anything. I'm sitting on the train, and uh, on my phone pops up a little notification. Someone's trying to sign into your Facebook account from San Antonio, Texas. Is this you? And I hit no. And then like 10 minutes later, someone's trying to sign your Facebook account from somewhere else. Is this you? No. That happened like five or six more times in the next 20 minutes, and then my entire Facebook was flagged, locked, and effectively deleted which is including my business account and our sale on the podcast Instagram page. So we've already gotten a couple messages from you guys. Unfortunately, the Instagram page is down at the moment, but it's not even searchable. It's, it's like it doesn't even exist. Yeah. We've got a friend of a friend who works at, at Meta and hoping that they're able to recover hook us, that. Yeah. Hook us up there. We're in the queue. <laughs> I have, I have a lot of hope that it'll come back. So Keep your eyes peeled. Hopefully uh, that all gets recovered. Until then, uh, feel free to, to reach out to Sarah uh, or email us um, if you need to, to get in touch with us. Uh, otherwise, we see you. We know. Thank you. Sorry. Lost the social media platform. That's a big way we, we communicate with you guys. Um, so I guess now you're just going to. We just posted that awesome picture of Harry Houdini in his cell naked. You know what? Naked. Ma- maybe that's what got it flagged. <laughs> it, was, it was adult nudity. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated. Uh, and uh, I just want everyone out there to know that um, uh, we didn't delete it. We're not ignoring you. And I know. We are aware of the situation. It's shocking that they can just Thanos, right? I well, was that's just, the thing. That's why a lot of people stress backing up your, yeah. your content it, it took me about five days and i i started a new facebook um so hopefully uh, it'll be back in action yes. though i i told you i have you a have good feeling about it i think it's gonna come back man- manifest that shit manifest that manifest it guys <laughs> um other than that uh we're well into november at this point our october uh, is over. Uh, I'm giving my last tour today. Sarah, you've got a couple more weeks yeah, of, of not, tours. Not too much. Yep. I'll be finishing up the weekend after Thanksgiving. And then we take our little break. But just so you guys know, uh, we'll sort of be getting back to some more regularly scheduled content. October uh, was fun and busy. Uh, we tried to uh, get some good spooky ghost stories, Halloween stuff in there for you guys. But tried to keep the research to a minimum only because we didn't have the time. Yeah, so yeah. thanks for sticking with us through that. And we do have some very good topics of conversation coming up here. So what we, do we got next week? We don't usually tell them. No, I know. But I kind of <sighs> want to give them a little bit of okay, okay. an well, overview just so they can get excited. Okay. So I guess we got uh, Samuel McIntyre next week. If you're familiar with Salem architecture, we mentioned him before. We've mentioned him several times. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, he deserves his, his own episode. Yeah, we can talk about the chair again. Yep, and yep. all of his houses, <laughs> the lasting mark he's left on Salem. Yep, and then we're gonna have a little postseason check-in once we're all done with work, wrap up the year. Um, following that, of course, I'm getting into the December Christmas time frame, so we gotta talk about Krampus. Of course, um, we've got a Krampus walk thing going on here Cramp- in Salem. Krampus crawl. Yeah, so that should be cool. And then uh, we're gonna dive into the Crucible for you guys. We know. We reference it 
and like all the time all, and we'll, we'll talk about it later we'll talk about it later we'll talk about it later and we've gotten several requests to do a you know a an analysis so we, we'll, we'll talk about um uh, arthur miller the time frame why he wrote it when it was written the plays the movies movies multiple uh probably a good two-part episode on that one and then so that's what we got coming for yeah. you but for now but for now what happened in salem in 1692 sarah or oh, wait do we have anything else Oh, I did want to give a, a quick shout out to Arlie and Scott. Congratulations on your engagement. They had taken the tour. I've ha- I, I'm sure you've had also a lot of listeners recently. Yes. And I don't tell them until the very end. And I, I'm very like nonchalant Same. about it. Sometimes they, they like wait in secret and like I'll kind of figure exactly. it out like halfway through the tour. You know, like sometimes I ask questions, right? Right. And And like... They know, or they like whisper to their friends, uh-huh. and I'm like, mm, I think you've been cheating. <laughs> like I had someone making haunted pepper jokes to me. <laughs> like we were talking about the different tour groups around town, and she's like, "Oh, we can take them. We can take them. We'll just throw pepper at them." <laughs> so funny, make them sneeze all over the place. <laughs> but this this couple that I had on tour, they didn't mention anything about being listeners and at the very end when we're saying goodbye she came up she looks me dead in the eye she's like huge fan huge fan of the podcast it's like oh my gosh thank you so much and I caught her name real quick and then she had reached out to me online and they got engaged the next day here in Salem so it really just warmed my heart do, do to you know see. what they did what what, what, it, what it I did it it didn't really seemed to have too much explanation like I didn't I couldn't tell like the context of the photo I couldn't tell where they were or what exactly they were doing but I know they were in Salem and they're from New York so they definitely came here for this special occasion good job yeah I know right Uh, did you see that someone proposed with Bora this year they were waiting yes, behind Bora. Yes, yes, I saw that. And then as soon as Bora moves out of the way, you know, one person's down on one knee. And oh, it was, I watched it like three times. <laughs> it was so good. That's the dream. So good. But anyways. Um, also, I wanted to say thank you to uh, everyone who has been uh, uh, giving or sending us stuff. Oh, my gosh, uh, yeah. I, I, I got my box. So Sarah's <laughs> been getting a lot of stuff, and uh, I, I had a big package delivery. So, so thank you to, to everyone for that. We really literally have, we have the best listeners ever, oh. and um, it's obviously been a very long season. So we see all your messages. We appreciate your kind words, and any little bit of goodies really just makes our day. So thank but, you so much. But. But. No more candy corn, please. (laughs) (laughs) The season's done. I'm not walking 10 miles a day anymore. I have never eaten so much candy corn in my life. In my life. Uh, Thank you. You're wonderful people. I love it. Um, New appreciation over here. Good, good, good. So let's dive into today's episode. As we said, we're going to talk about theories, theories behind why the witch trials started and what contributed to how they played out, whether it's social tensions or economic issues, gender hierarchy. We're going to go through a little list of these things, talk about some of the scholars that brought these theories to light, um, because as much as we love Salem, and it is such a hot topic of conversation, pretty much anywhere you go right now, historians, and not just historians, but psychologists, sociologists, they have been 
honing in on this 1692-1693 for quite some time, decades, last hundred years, even longer than that. So we're going to talk about some of those theories, and hopefully by the end of it, you have a good understanding of why this whole thing started, and you'll have a better understanding of some of the misconceptions that you may come across. That way, uh, you're not going around touting ergot poisoning or anything well, like that. We'll get there in just a second. Yeah, so it, it's... Uh, there is no easy answer. There is no simple answer. It's a complicated narrative regardless of the way you look at it. Um, there's a multifaceted piece of the puzzle. Use whatever allegory you want. Um, but I think uh, one thing's important, and I think we've mentioned this before, and to get to, to quote Marilyn K. Roach, we have lost more knowledge about the trials than we'll ever actually know. Um, I believe she says that in one of her books. So when we look in regards to the the documentation, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of we don't when we weren't there. We're looking at like medical and uh, uh, psychological diagnoses here in in some cases, and we're like we're missing half the records. You know, we don't have person. No one was sitting down and talking to the young woman like in a in a medical professional sense. So it's like we just have to sort of wade through the weeds and and try and sort some of this out. Uh, so we're going to try and give you the best answers that we have, um, but there is no easy answer. No, and it's not one answer either. No. It's yeah. not a single answer. We're not putting these theories up against each other by any means. I think most modern interpretations take a very multifaceted approach where it is a combination of all of these things working in sync to create this perfect storm. To quote Emerson Baker, his book is literally called A Storm of Witchcraft, and I believe that came out in 2015 or 2016. So if you're looking for like a good modern interpretation of the trials and what contributed to them, I would suggest starting there because he has taken all of these theories that we're about to talk about and kind of woven them together to explain it as you know just a human occurrence there there's nothing more human than what happened here in Salem 330 years ago there's a lot of things more human like you know compassion and kindness well no I know but like unfortunately humans have that other side to them and they they want to other they want they want to create the other they want to scapegoat like we all know this humans have done horrible horrible things in the name of fear in the name of religion throughout the last several thousand years so unfortunately um bad things happened And they were very human things. So as much as we may want to point the finger at some type of illness or something, at the end of the day, it just doesn't hold up. Mm -hmm. So we can, you want to dispel some narratives? Yeah, let's start with, let's start with ergot poisoning and just get that one out of the way. So that's not a thing. I mean, it's a thing. It's a thing that gets talked about in almost every, so you, you talk about ergot poisoning on your tour. I don't. I I sort of just ignore it, right? Like I don't want to feed that that fire. I don't want to. I don't even want to dispel the narrative. We're not even going to bring it up. It's not even a topic I'm going to cover. Um, whereas, which you do talk about it, and you say this is what it was, and it is not right, and this is why it is not. Yes, it's funny. I realize that I do the same thing that you just explained, but with Cotton Mather. Like okay. someone asked me the other night, 
you know, where does Cotton Mather fit into this? And we like to describe him as an expert witness. You know, he's one right, of those right. people that you would bring in to kind of give commentary because he's got a prestigious position. But if we focus on him, if we focus on Judge Hathorne, Corwin, you are spending more time focusing on those big names, those big, those men who are sitting in power, kind of, you know, pulling the puppet strings and neglecting the people that, you know, are at the bottom of this, the mm-hmm. ones that are actually doing the accusing and being accused. So it's it's an interesting thing to do. What you take out of a tour, what you keep out of a tour can say just as yeah. much <laughs> as leaving it in. Yeah. But yes, I do talk about ergot poisoning on my tours. Um, just briefly, we do like a little stop where we talk about some of these theories because I do want people to understand that this is not, you know, Salem wasn't existing in a bubble and there are a multitude of factors that played into this. But unfortunately, ergot poisoning is just not one of them. It's a great theory. I uh, It's been a while since I really looked at the article. I did quite a bit of research into the witch trials during my undergrad and graduate career. But I don't remember the last time I actually read through her article, and that would be Linda Caporeal. Uh Her article came out in, in 1976, and it was published in the journal Science, just, just Science, volume 192, and uh, it was published in April. Now, that will be refuted just within, a, within months, months, within yeah. months. But basically she says that ergot poisoning can be used to explain a multitude of different weird occurrences mm-hmm. throughout our history. Mm-hmm. Um, one in particular she stresses is the dancing plague of 1518. Yeah, yeah. Of 1518. So uh, for those of you who don't know, this is probably one of my favorite examples on like talking about or relating other things to the witch trials um small village south of france this woman takes to the public square and starts dancing like erratically yeah and 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 dancing and then more people join her and then more people and then more people and they are dancing and dancing for not like days weeks feet bloodied ankles broken to live strokes and heart attacks and die like i like a good i like to go to you like to you love to dance i do love to dance i'm not at the end of the, at two in the Not morning, like you're yeah, like, oh. I'm like, I'm good after a couple hours. I'm good. Yeah. And it just went and they couldn't be stopped. They were like picked up, like tied down, like restrained. And they just kept going. And you're like, and I think it's one of my favorite examples of like, we as people are not normal or okay or say we like, we like to think of ourselves as like these we're put together. Yeah. yeah. We're like, great's the wrong word but we are we are people we are human we are strong we are power and you're like we are frail and we are fragile in, in control of our surroundings in control of our mind our bodies but not not, not always no. modern theories do point to ergot poisoning as being a possible explanation behind that and did you know that there were also several other cases of dancing plague in that area during the middle medieval era I did not. I just know about the the 1518 in that uh, in that one region. And a lot of people have drawn correlations between like disease and starvation in those areas followed by the dancing mm-hmm. and and the erratic behavior. So um, stress-induced psychosis has also been suggested. But ergot so, poisoning, it's basically 
this fungus that grows on rye, mm-hmm. and it is the fungus that is used to make LSD. Can, can be. Can be, or, I mean, can you make it from other stuff? Yeah, it, it can just be, it doesn't have to come from, from ergot. It can be just grow, uh, uh, made in a lab. Okay. Well, I know um, that the, the acid that they were making, like, in the early 70s, like, actually, it was derived from ergot. Right. Which yeah. the Puritans aren't doing. Obviously not. Like, it's a great sort of, like, if, if you imagine being in the 70s and this idea of Salem is popular. There's lots of published articles. We're, we'll get into that. And it's, like, the hot-button topic. And all of a sudden, you sit there and you're like, oh, my gosh. What if? What and like the pieces of the puzzle exposed? really fit. Like they fit well, um, and it becomes this incredibly like that's it. That's the answer. And you know you, you can sort of use um, that sort of uh, idea of Occam's razor, uh, where in which you know the the process to get to the answer that hypothesis is the easiest. Is it is the most clearly defined, easily explainable. Except at the end of the day, unfortunately, there is a significant amount of problems wrong with the theory. So she really focuses in on the first two girls mm-hmm. that start experiencing symptoms in Reverend Paris's house, Abigail Williams, Betty Paris, and then also talks a lot about the Putnam family. Mm-hmm. So those two houses were very close together. And a lot of people say, you know, this would have infected the whole town. It would have infected much more than just these girls. And her argument is that it was only a specific area that was prone to this type of, that would have been ideal growing conditions for the ergot. So it it was more Western. So Salem, if you look at a map of Salem, Salem as it stands today is is on the coast, right? So Salem Village is more Western, more inland. And so that Western part of the fields and Salem farms is more wetland and it has uh, more susceptible to flooding, which is then uh, producing these more damp conditions, storage, grain, and that is uh, a more prominent conditions for this uh, uh, mold and fungus to grow on the stored wheat. She also says that it's likely um, that Reverend Paris is paid in, uh, uh, or part of his stipend or whatnot comes from wheat. Uh, is it like, so instead of just paying, he's getting it like a food stipend effectively. Right. And that wheat that he is getting is going to be coming from this area. Uh, which we don't know for certain, uh, but that is one of the things she sort of hypothesizes in that, which then sort of draws it all in together. And like I said, you're like, wow, no, that that sort of all makes sense. It was so convincing. Yeah. She also <laughs> brings up that this type of ergot poisoning often affects young children mm-hmm. more than adults. So mm-hmm. that would explain why it's the children that are being targeted. But then you start really thinking about the conditions that that would have to, you know, to make this real, right? It would have to be, it's a great idea, but it it's so specific. It's a selection of households, and it doesn't account for any of the accusations, you know, outside of those households. Right, as it, as it grows and spreads, and it's up in Andover, you know, it's like, that's like 30 miles away. Right. And we're still seeing these, these uh, conditions. I think one of my favorite uh, sort of, and I, I don't like when I used to talk about it more on my tour um, is that we don't we don't we don't eat mold. But we do eat cheese. We eat cheese. But like, you know, you, you, we've all been in, in college. Right. And and like you get you get that moldy piece of bread. You just pinch that little bit of mold and, and, and you throw it away and then you eat, eat the rest of the good bread. Ew. Yeah. I, yeah. Been there. Done that. Right. <laughs> 
right? But yeah. imagine just like eating all that mold. Is no. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's very like it's it's not it's not like in your face mold. It's just kind of a light dusting. <clears throat> but it also would have had to been a lot. Right. It'd have to be that's, a significant amount. Yeah, that's the other key factor is that to to reach the effects that this poisoning would have had. Um, just like with anything, right? Uh, you can you can have one cup of coffee and feel fine. You you have ten, and you're like, you know, <laughs> now now you've been poisoned effectively. It's a drug, yeah. right? Uh, anything like one alcohol is fine. Three alcohols for some of us. <laughs> not not naming any names. Um, it is bad, and and that's just the same thing here. Like they would have had to eaten just a ridiculous amount of it and and been poisoned, and then that comes with. A whole host of other symptoms. Right, there would be vomiting before the the hallucinations took because hold because you're poisoning yourself. Right. So, and that really wasn't happening. I will commend her for acknowledging that there is. She does say at the beginning of the article that there is no one answer. That mm-hmm. it can't be all used. This can't be used to explain everything that happened. What I did take major issue with, though is she points to the testimony and and draws this correlation in the courtroom and how the girls, their spasms and their outbursts in the courtroom were very much similar to symptoms that you would see from someone experiencing ergot poisoning. But then my issue with that is the fact that these girls like we we've read multiple times a lot of mimicry right if if one of the accused tilts their head and all the girls start like tilting their head or they throw themselves on the ground that is like a blatant reaction yeah to that person that you are it's a conscious decision to do that so that's where i was like nah, i don't think you can really point to that also that's that doesn't start till May, months months May, later june time frame right right so we've got you know not all of half of january call it right because we know they're they're suffering before reverend paris uh you know goes away uh so half of january all of february all of march all of april pretty much all of may that's and now by this point uh we should be getting in a replenishment of grain stock and things along these lines. They're getting into the spring and summer time frame. They're not still relying on those scant winter storage uh, uh, food sources that they had. But it sounds good. It's pretty. Drugs and LSD, right? Yeah, it's exciting. That's yeah. what I always like to say. And especially in, in 1976, like it really, I, I, I can very easily see how it would have been uh, sort of, I mean, it was just, it was shown to be untrue uh, uh, within months, but like that idea you can really latch onto, especially at that point in history. Um, I completely agree. One of my favorite <clears throat> retorts to her article was put out by Stefan Nissenbaum, which we're actually going to talk about in a second here. Uh, him, along with Paul Boyer, produced probably one of the, the first and best interpretations on the social, economic, religious tensions that were going on during this time. But he will say, quote, appears, it appears unlikely to me 
that this would not happen in any other year, in any other household, in any other village. So just, again, the conditions, like, yes, it might be the easy answer, but for that to be the cause, like, to have the one household, you know, or a small selection of households in this village, right as these things take hold, it just, it's too, too perfect, I guess you could say, too easy. It's way too easy, given everything else that we know. Right. We also have to look at, they didn't know everything that we know. We yep. continuously learn about this subject and more research. And that's that's how this game works, is is we continue to study and continue to educate ourselves and learn more. And not just within the scope of the Salem Witch Trials, but like literally within the scope of like medicine and, and science and psychology, you know, 1976 and 2022, the ideas of, of, of psychological effects and, and illness uh, has grown. Tremendously. Right. And we can now much more easily look back and pinpoint some of these things or, you know, economic and social stressors uh, as well. We're much more comfortable even just having a casual conversation about some of these things. Right. Much less a, uh, uh, a public and, and educated scientific discussion about these things. As we said, her theory will be dispelled. Yes. Pretty soon <laughs> after. Oh, that's, that's that was good. Nice. That was good. Pretty soon after it's published. So that came out in April of 1976, December of that same year in the same issue, or sorry, in the same journal, um, two psychologists will put forth a complete review of all the evidence, both medical, historical. They conclude that her hypothesis just does not fit. And then, of course, you do have the commentary coming from Salem Possessed's authors as well. So as much as it's a great, vibrant theory, exciting, it's just not the case. But we hear it brought up all the time. I think I, I, had, I had my last, uh, or some might, nope, that's not right. What happened? I have my last tour today. Uh, yesterday, I had, a, I had an afternoon tour. And I get any questions. And occasionally someone will ask, so what about, what about Ergot? And then I'll, I'll go into a quick explanation if they ask. And this woman's looking at me like, not, not that I'm wrong, but she was like confused. And she believed me, but she was like, I was like taught that. Yeah. Oh no, they're still teaching it too. Yeah. She, she was like, she was trying to remember like where she learned that, but you could tell like in her mind, someone of a credible nature taught her that. Not like, not like an article she read online or she was, she, you could tell she was like, I was like taught that. And I was like, listen, like, you know, this is the explanation. If you want to Google it and, and have a little bit of a deep dive, surface narrative, you're still going to find it being propagated, but it just takes a little bit to get through that and, and to, to see the source of that. I actually had someone on tour this year who told me that Ergot was being taught in their community college classroom. So there are still professors out there. <sighs> but that's the thing. History is an interpretation. Mm -hmm. It really is. And I think this is probably one of the coolest. I never, ever, ever thought that we would be having this discussion on the podcast. Um, but we're going to give you a little history of history lesson, or what we like to call historiography in the history field, which I'm sure a lot of people aren't familiar with that term. But if you do take any upper level history classes, or you go for your graduate degree, you're probably going, I definitely, if you go for your graduate degree, you're going to learn what this means. And it's 
basically the history of history, understanding that the history that we consume in our classrooms, whether it's grade school, college, after college, all of that is being filtered through a person. There is someone that is creating that narrative, not to take your word or anything, but but that's basically what it is. And in order to put forth any argument of your own, you have the duty as a historian, as a researcher, to go back through these things that have already been presented so you have a clear and full understanding of the field. Well, that's with almost any, I mean, science. Exactly. At at all. Of course. If you write a published work, part of your published work is going to be showing uh, counter arguments to your work as well as providing a, uh, a significant amount of uh, citable sources on what supports your argument. So you both have to be like, this is why I'm making this argument. This is what led me here. And people have refuted this. This is what they say. However, this is the evidence to show that that is incorrect. And we know, and as you said the difference between science and medical knowledge from the 70s to now, same goes for our historical interpretations because they are all influenced by everything around us. You're going to see more feminist takes during the waves of feminism. You're going to see more psychological, social, economic theories in the 20th century. No one was thinking necessarily about Actually, definitely no one was thinking about gender hierarchy in the 1800s when they're writing about Salem. It just wasn't a thing. So it takes someone to step outside that framework that has already been put forth to then create something new and different. And not even necessarily new, but kind of like a new interpretation. So we're going to talk about some of those those people that really brought to the forefront these different theories on Salem. Where, where do we want to start? I'm going to start all the way back. So we're, we are going to jump back to the 1800s real quick, actually 1700s, just as a quick overview. So people know, you know, people ask us all the time, like, when was Salem a thing? When was it being talked about? Of course, we have the witch spoon produced by Daniel Lowe and company. Eight, eight, eight 1700, no. No, 1880s, late, right? Late 1800s. So people have been talking about Salem and the trials themselves for even longer than that. Uh, You'll have some accounts come out immediately after the trials, but the first like real discussion of them, and I shouldn't even say discussion, more like a chronicling, you know, back then history was just like, you record the events. We're not really considering interpretation. Or analysis. Or analysis, exactly. So you'll see the very first mention in the history of the province of Massachusetts Bay in 1767. And that'll be Thomas Hutchinson, Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. I dug way back into my historiography (laughs) papers for this one. It was actually quite convenient because, as I said, I studied these in school and I did a whole, I had a historiography class where you had to pick a topic and you go through the literature and how different historians through time have talked about it and written about it. And I decided to do mine on women 
and like gender in the Salem witch trials. So how I looked at how different scholars throughout the centuries either did acknowledge or didn't acknowledge that there was a discrepancy between men and women. And we all know women were definitely targeted at a greater rate, but it will be a long time before someone actually makes that distinction and talks about it with a purpose. And there's still a lot of historical inaccuracies when it comes to even that account. Yeah. Like, oh, like what, because without getting too much into it, like what the European witch trials consist of uh-huh. was very different than what we consist of. And that has to do with like religious hierarchy, which also has to do with like the more uh, 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 wild woman or witch or, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the village with with the herbs and the the oh, like a um not like a midwife yeah 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 sort yeah. of like like yeah I guess that's probably the best uh, example because that's like what a lot of they they were focused on and here in Salem little different religious beliefs little different although we still get that like midwife idea and I think and don't quote me on this because I read it somewhere I've tried to find it again I can't remember where so there were no midwives like a, right yeah yeah no a, it's ex- it's a huge except. The very first person accused in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Yeah. Yeah. She was. So you can't say none, and it happens to be the very first, but of everyone else who came after that, it was not. But people still latch on to that. They're like, well, well, they were all. I'm like, no. Again, and it also makes sense, right? Like, it's an easy explanation right. that, oh, this woman is stepping outside of her gender norm and she's practicing medicine in some capacity, right. which it, it sh- it's not accepted. Of course, she must be a witch. Yeah. And it's like, no, you have the, the range of, you know, between four-year-old girls and, you know, 85-year-old men. It's like, it's 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 a lot. There is no one easy answer. Anyway, sorry, getting off track. No, 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 this is good. <laughs> this is good discussion. I'm cutting none of it out. <laughs> the first... None of you are going to actually hear that, by the way. Probably not. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> probably the first ever publication about the witch trials came from charles upham mm-hmm. have you you've I've, I'm, we i don't think we've talked about this at probably all probably not it's just an overview yeah. i guess of the the trials themselves what happened and that came in 1867 so we are 150 years or so past the witch trials give or take i don't know i can't less count than that. sure yeah. I thought you were coming this way, and I was like, that's not right. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, 108, 9, I can't count. Again, written by another prominent dude. Uh, he was Salem's mayor for a time, held a seat in the House of Representatives. He was, a, he was representative. The Senate, uh-huh. Um, and this is definitely the most comprehensive profile of Salem. And he does talk a little bit about its early settlement, too, and how that plays into the whole or overarching story. It's a two-volume piece, so it's, a, it's pretty ab- substantial. Uh, the, uh, the fine folks over at uh, Deal Marcus had a, had a – I don't think it was an original publication, <gasps> but it was like a late 1800s publication, and uh, this was like a – like a year and a half ago, maybe. And I was like, and they, they were expensive because, you know, rightfully so. And I was like, shoot, and I was like, I want those. And then like a couple of weeks went by and I was like, you know what? That's like a neat 
little bit of history. You went and got it? Nope. Oh, no, it was gone, wasn't it? Was it? Gone. it was gone. Someone else had bought it. If you ever want, like, the coolest antiques ever, go check out Deal Marcus. Yes, yes. They got some so, cool stuff in there. I'm glad someone someone found it. But I think initially he was like, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to sell that, da-da-da. And then, like, someone's, I came and he's like, oh, I sold it. I was like, damn it. Do you remember how much it was? I don't. I'm curious. I don't. Was I, it just one volume? No, it was both. Both? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'd think on it. I don't know. <laughs> you know me and my pension for, for expensive books. Old books, yep. <laughs> so I think this will bring us to our first, like, real and probably longest lasting theory as to why this whole thing went down is just blatant fraud, right? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is just the girls are lying. All of it's a ruse, whether it's fueled by jealousy or anger or girls just acting out, all of it was made up. An elaborate ruse. Um, so I think this is also a good place to start to say that that is not entirely inaccurate no it's not so that that is part of the truth uh that is part of what is actually happening here it is not the sole and definitive answer we're leaving out you know it's just a piece of the puzzle um and because i i think once you start talking about about that uh then you can get into uh, some of the adults behaving the way they were uh so, because you know, like, cool, so these young girls are screaming on the ground. They're, they're suffering in some way. Um, and then you have, you know, fully grown, educated men jumping up, pulling their swords out, swinging at specters in the middle of the room. And you're like... It's like, what? Uh, how much of this are you buying into? Like, right. do you actually believe you're seeing someone, or are you just going along with the show it gives you clout now you've seen something and now you're more respect and you're like oh my gosh they saw he could attack them. and then and, and then there's that and then you get on you get into like the different sides right if you want to avoid being on the accused side you might try to position yourself cement yourself into the accusing side mm-hmm. because we all know full well these days that that idea of proje- you've done something wrong, you're just going to project and throw at the people. They did this. They did this. They did that. They did this. And so you're like, well, I've seen that. I saw this attack. It clearly couldn't be me. So there, that idea of, 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 of fraud doesn't just resonate with the girls. It spreads through the community. I think, yeah, even more so, it should resonate with the adults because, yeah. I mean, kids are kids. And some of these girls are very young. And Ann Putnam Jr. is 12. Her mother is in her 20s, right? I'm not. She's an, she's an adult. Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure yeah. her actual age. But, I mean, she's she's pushing that narrative hard. Right. No, I, yeah. It's, um. we've talked about this before. No one wants to admit they're wrong, right? No one's going to come out and say, yeah, I made all this up and I yeah, killed we, uh, people because of it. We, we, we know that full well. <laughs> but for, for young kids to admit they're wrong that's one thing but adults adults really don't like to admit they're wrong especially in a world like this yeah when there's less understanding um, and and that's where we get the term the devil made me do it they is it no just just the idea oh not sorry not like the action but right but it's like well i didn't do it i wasn't responsible i didn't it was something I the devil made me in your right, life. I didn't make this you're, conscious decision. You're, you're shirking that responsibility, that acceptance of the of your behavior. You're like I didn't. The, the devil made me do. I was influenced by the de- devil. Right. You're like no. deluded by the devil, as they say. 
No, Miss Putnam, you're just a bitch. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's funny. I actually uh, ran into a Putnam descendant as I was giving a tour this October. We were going through the witch trials memorial, talking about some of the people. And this guy, I could see he was kind of latching onto the tour a little bit. And before we continued on, he just said, hey, uh, I'm actually related to the Putnams. And I said, oh, really? Like, like which Putnams? Because there's Putnams on both sides here. And he said, Thomas Putnam. And I was like, oh, dude, your your ancestor was not the best guy. <laughs> but he took it in stride. Like, he, he understood. He knew that, you know, his family was a major contributing factor. Yeah. It was interesting. It's always fun when you meet those people. You know, we get descendants of victims all the time. But when you get someone that's descendant from the accusers or the persecutors, like like one of the judges, Sheriff Corwin. Mm -hmm. One thing that Upham also does that I'm not a big fan of, and um, you'll see a little bit more of this play out in the early 20th century interpretations, is he places a lot of blame on Tichaba. And I think that, so this is one of those situations where you can look at when this literature comes out, when it's being produced, who's producing it, and what those environmental factors, how they're playing a role. So this came out in 1867, right around the Civil War. Yep. Obviously, racial tensions are at a head at this point. Definitely would have been impacted by that, for sure. And here's this, and that's another thing, here's this other like literally like and we'll get more into this probably about uh in the crucible so <laughs> there we go again uh she's different she's not like them and so she's clearly influencing them in some way shape or form um i can't remember who it is there's a there's a tour guide in town uh credible one so th 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 this is a positive <sighs> I've I've overheard them say this, so I'm I'm trying to give credit, and I, and I can't remember. Uh, you know, so we we start off that narrative of Tichuba, and they're out and they're in the woods and they're dancing, you know, barefoot and naked, right? And he's like, "It's the middle of January." Oh my God, I say that. You say, I say that. Are you sure it's not one of us? I didn't think it was you. Jeff and I, yeah, we talk about that only when the Crucible comes up, though. Then, then someone else said it. it wasn't someone it wasn't, else. Tour wars, but. Um, well, there you go. Credit to you and Jeff and, and the mystery tour guide who, who also brings yeah, that yeah. up. No, we, we talk about like, you know, people love this. It's almost an, ex again, it's an exciting kind of flashy image of these young ladies dancing naked around a fire. But yeah, it's middle of January. Like there was probably a foot of snow on the ground. Yeah. Go out, go, go and, go and do that. Yeah. See, see, see if you see how that plays out. We should do that. this. No, time. that sounds horrific. Get really into it. <laughs> method <You know>. research. <laughs> we'll take some LSD. We'll get high. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and when there's like two feet of snow outside, tripping. And when people are wondering what those lunatics are doing. They're like, it's okay. They run sale on the podcast. It's fine. It's for research purposes. <laughs> it's great. Uh, anyway. So we're going to take a big jump here from the mid-1800s to the 20th century. So this is where you see like a huge influx of 
different theories by historians, uh, as we mentioned earlier, psychologists, sociologists, medical doctors as well. Mm -hmm. The woman who presented the ergot poisoning theory, I believe she was a med student. Don't quote me on that. But we've just got, it's kind of like a, a game of who can come up with the best, newest thing, right? right? Which we, you, you see in a lot of different disciplines. I mean, you're psychology guy. I'm sure, you know, after Freud, you're just going to see oh, one after another. Well, after like another, Psych 101 and Psych 102 are just like, we have this guy in this theories, this guy in this theories, this guy in this theories, and this hierarchy of needs, and this context, and this construct, and these beliefs, and where, you know, and, and then you're talking, the, you know, the, 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 different phase and how memory works and you know the id and the, the it's just always it's always someone else's thing and then you're gonna be like well how is this affecting what you're talking about and that's you're right pretty much what we have here although i feel like it's also at this point that we are starting to or even have a good grasp of social and economic factors yes which is in my opinion that's that's the answer like that that's an umbrella that includes hundreds of things, but it's social and economic factors. All, all, all wrapped up in a nice, wonderful package of religious extremism. So that's a, that's a whole nother. But we also have to remember that within the scope of the Puritan belief system, they explain anything negative in their world and a lack of under... They don't have science right they're not like looking for that they don't have um uh national weather service they don't know what the weather patterns are they don't you know if it floods if they lose crops if their cattle die if their children die that is all explained to them rationally they believe as the devil so what we then have in salem is the explanation is the devil but there's a lot of negative things salem's tough I think that's one of the the strides that is made in these newer understandings also. This idea that their belief system was completely different than ours. Like some folks earlier on may have looked back at Salem and thought, how could those people be so stupid? How could you honestly think that there were witches amongst you and kill people because of it? Well, I think that's important is but the idea of the witch. Yeah, but in reality, if you put yourself in their shoes, if you think like a Puritan would, it makes sense to them. It is real to them. And I think the newer interpretations, they are better at fleshing that out mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, you can't, and that's another thing, it's hard to diagnose someone with ergot poisoning from several centuries in the future. Like putting any type of retroactive diagnoses are hard because you can't be there and you can't know what all the other external factors were like, you know, I mean, and, and I don't want to, never mind. So, so their idea of what is going on is paramount to the discussion of what is going on because we look back and we're like, Oh, well you want to explain it with, you know, fraud or ergot or whatever. And you're like, right, right. But we're not taking into account what their belief structure was and what they genuinely believed was happening. And without that conversation, well, you're, you're leaving out, I mean, I don't want to say the whole conversation. But it's their rationale. Like it's their reasoning. Yeah. 
they truly believed that there was this evil presence in the area. And remember, you have to make that distinction between folk magic and real, real witchcraft, which they truly, wholeheartedly believed in. We're talking women flying around on sticks. Talking cats, human-faced birds, all these familiars we've talked about are... They are not, we're talking about it. We're like, oh, Giles Corey with his turtles. turtles. <laughs> and la- they're sitting here being like, <gasps> and they are terrified. This is real. And that has to be included in why this happened. Um, so I think we need to talk about uh, social and economic disparity. So this is frontier territory. We've talked about that before. Like right on the heels of the frontier. Yeah. Getting getting through a day in New England uh, is tough. Uh, there is a lot to contend with. Uh, and, and this can be everything from food needs to, to financial needs, uh, economic furs. The conflict, we'll talk about the, the indigenous people in a minute. Um, but we like, as people, right, that... We just had had the election, right? Hot button, right? Uh, economic growth, the economy, uh, inflation. Uh, we like social and economic stability. These people have very little, very little um, issues with the crown, issues with back home. We don't even have we don't even have a governor for like, yep. <laughs> which is not something that gets talked about often. And enough. then the governor that gets put in doesn't know what he's doing. No. So you're like, Remember, Governor Phipps shows up with the new charter for the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and he walks into the middle of this. Yeah. People are already in jail. Dozens of people already in jail. But He's ne- never done this before. This, no one had done this before. And, and he walks in this literal nightmare scenario. Congratulations, sir. What do we do now? You're in charge. So this is one of those situations where I think, you know, it's like a Jenga, you know? Like, you know, it's like, a, it's <laughs> you know what? I love that. That is built up. It's got all these different type of contributions. But if you were to take just the right one out, this may have never happened. So like if he wasn't the guy, if it was someone that had a little bit more experience, a calmer head, took more control, put a stop to it, this may have never resulted in the deaths that it did. You, you know what I think my one piece for that would be? Huh? Uh, Sheriff Corwin's, uh, uh, I don't know how to put this in the opposite way I'm trying to say it. He stops requiring that financial bond to, to make an accusation. Ah, yeah. I think if he'd never done that, if you still had to pay money for every accusation you make. Oh yeah, 100%. Boom. No Salem witch trials. Yeah, so. But again. Traditionally, you would have to put forth money to make that legal accusation because if you're wrong someone's got to pay the bill and yeah. you're going to be w- the one that pays the bill yeah. so you might have accused one or two but I, you're not going to be able to financially support that no putnam would be broke <laughs> broken a day broken a day selling off his lands just instead to accuse- of acquiring others yeah yeah um but there's all these different factors and it's like why ergot no look look at the big picture uh, look at everything else that's happening here. Uh, no charter, no rule of law. Uh, the the indigenous, the conflict with the indigenous people, I think, which I've said before, um, is one of uh, the most important conversations to have, um, which is relatively recent. Extremely. 
2002. Yeah. So another great book to check out, Mary Beth Norton's In the Devil's Snare, which was, it, it kind of shook up the history field a bit, um, especially when it came to Salem interpretations, because mm-hmm. she was really the first one who said, wait a minute, you have to look at these outside factors and understand them as a simultaneous thing. Like you can't just look at what's going on in the courtroom. You can't just look at what's going on in the courtroom and the town. You have to look at the whole region and what these people are dealing with for decades leading up to this 1692. Absolutely. And you know, she did not plan on that being her hypothesis. She was looking through old journals, I think I know diaries. That. She was more trying to focus on like gender hierarchy, which we'll talk about next. Um, but she discovered this ridiculous correlation between people talking about the Indian wars, as they referred to them as. So in, in what you mean by people, t- it's private letters. Letters, right? diaries, yeah. that kind so, of so thing. So she's going through and she's expecting to find all this evidence of the trials. The trials. And the, the topic of conversation is not the trials it's so salem and the whole new england frontier was dealing with two different wars which we'll we'll probably i mean we talked quite a bit about uh we've talked about king uh, philip's war and queen anne's war and is that king william's war that's that's another one another one okay but the people that are involved in that war are the same people that you see in the trials, yeah. whether it's the judges who were military leaders during that time, or it's the children who are doing accusations, they may have lost their families. Abigail Williams did. Yep. I, I Mercy Lewis did. T- towards the end of my tour, or at the very, very end, when I'm talking about uh, what we believe actually happened, and that's coming up soon, um, I'm like, look at Abigail Williams. She is a war refugee. She is 11. She has seen the slaughter of her whole family uh, and, you know, at the hands of the quote-unquote savage natives. And now she's living in Reverend Paris's home and he's practicing his sermons every day, you know, for better or worse. And, and she's over and over and over again, just, you know, the devil will come find and destroy. And it has. In her world, the devil has already destroyed her whole Everything. family. And I cannot imagine the the, the the trauma the nightmares uh, PTSD this young girl was was suffering and like it's the middle of winter food is scarce no firewood you know it's, yeah <laughs> oh sorry she cracked it makes sense it makes sense especially with her being one of the first people yeah. to really start putting out ac- accusations. And there's no record of this. I mean, maybe there is, and I've just never seen it or heard it. But uh, she probably felt some measure of protection or need to protect her her little cousin. Uh Like, you know, that big sister, you know, and and I don't even, yeah. And that is so rarely talked about. And it's like, but all that stems. I think it's also hard to get people to believe it. Yeah. It's hard to communicate the significance to folks. You're like, Again, it's different than yeah. today. Yeah, you're you're 11, and now you're in the le- these conditions. Shocked, and yeah. not just her, but everyone, everyone yeah. in town. But she, knows. she, I always feel like she's not the instigator. Um, 
one of the initiators. No, no. Well, what's the catalyst? Ah, yes. It, it's her. She has suffered. You know, if, if you're a Putnam and you've been living in Salem your whole life, you don't, you don't have a bad. Right. Right. She's, she suffered enormously in her 11 years on this earth. And, you know, she's now in this situation and she's being told day in and day out to be scared that the devil will come again. And she cracks. Coupled with, you know, lack of food, lack of economic security, there is fear, there's no rule of law, there's no government. And all you have to look to is your religion. Which is telling you that you are going to suffer more. Not the rosiest picture. No. One of my favorite lines from Mary Beth Norton, she said she describes it as a dual narrative of war and witchcraft. Mm. That's really the only way that it can be understood. I think we've got couple more things here. Do you want to talk about patriarchy? Yes. Yeah. So one of my favorite books of all time is Devil in the Shape of a Woman Mm -hmm. by Carol Carlson. It came out in 1987. So we're right on like the heels of third wave feminism. Um, It's astounding that no one before her really called attention to this. But she basically asked the question, why is it primarily women? And Salem, if anything, is unique in the amount of men that are accused and executed outside of Salem, just New England witchcraft in general. Women were even more likely to be targeted. I think that really speaks to the uh, craze, how serious it was, uh-huh. right? Like it was so that if you want to look like like out of control, you know, you're like, they went that far. It well, wasn't, then, and then they start going to people in power as yeah, well. Like, yeah. it, it expen- expands it to men. It was not just your normal run of the bill. It went burned anyway. No, I completely agree. She described it, uh, she says, the history of witchcraft is primarily a history of women. She also just does a really good job at drawing the correlation. So, for instance... She looks at all the people that are accused. She looks at all the men that are accused and how many of those men had relations with a woman who was already accused. Oftentimes their accusation would follow their family member's accusation. They were connected to the witch first. She also talks about how much property impacted so like women could not inherit property under certain certain circumstances though they could but that's that's out of the norm right that's Mm -hmm. out of the patriarchal you know system so a lot of the women that were targeted were in some type of situation where they were bishop a lot yeah gonna inherit Um, land or did inherit land and i i um you know will inevitably hear misconceptions about Bridget Bishop every time you, you walk down the street in Salem. Um, <clears throat> I've heard like she had a personal grudge with Hathorne and she would, she was always wildly outspoken and, and no one liked her and, and these sorts of things, um, which, which fits that, that feminism narrative. Um, but I think it's just more important to understand that what a, a small outlier, she wasn't a huge outlier. Um, she had a husband die and the court had given her land. It's not like he willed it. 
the court said this, and you know, the same court, not the same court, but you know, sort of the same idea of a court system who is trying these people and saying these are this is the same court system that awards her a significant amount of property, and and their stipulation is why she remarries and still holds it, but she is now a married woman who owns her own land and can generate income off of that, and she's been accused of a witch in being sixteen eighty, and then what takes hold here is that fear machine which based in this patriarchal society just does its job and and it just builds and they're like well she's a witch we missed it the first time she was a witch the whole time maybe that's why, that's she why has, she's so successful that's exactly and a, ma- a man's success is obviously not tied to that but a woman's success in there and that fear that religious extremism that patriarchal narrative does its job what it was designed to do and now all of a sudden 30 years ago she bewitched her husband and she killed him and she did this and she did that and everyone's like oh my gosh it all starts to make sense i'm just thinking of you know in modern day we still have a bit of a discrepancy between pay between men and women yeah like a female who finds herself at the top of some type of you know profession in any capacity well yeah i mean well just in general (laughs) in general like a female that makes strides in her career will sometimes experience backlash because of who she is in this society even today in 2022 there is still that issue but back then over three centuries ago that type of success being outside the norm could get you killed. Mm-hmm. Even being in the norm. Yeah. Rebecca Nurse. Yep. And that's one of the things that that I think really highlights why this is so multifaceted is that there is not so many people. Well, they, they, they all owned property. Like they didn't all own property. They weren't all. They were out, all. I was going to say they're all outcasts. They, they weren't, weren't all outcasts. They weren't all anything. And don't get me wrong, sometimes there is a majority of the people, right? If we're looking at two, maybe 75, 80 uh, people did have this thing, but that's not even half. Right. And you have to look at like every, not every, everyone's different. And they're going after people. And it's like um, when we're talking about witch marks, witch cakes, uh, 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 the words of God, right? So like these different tools to discover, we, it is not just one and done. It is, we're going to figure this out, whatever fits that. And not only that, you, you can't just look at all the different accused, but you have to look at the accusers, accusers and yeah. their individual motivations. Everyone's got a different background. Yeah. Everyone's got a different, you know, reason behind it. And, and where they're living and what they've done, were they involved in the conflicts and, you know, what, what loss did they have? But do we want to sort of wrap it up? Yeah, with um, mass hysteria. No. I know you don't like that word. You shouldn't like that word. I know because it comes from, was it hysterectomy? Hysterectomy. Yeah. So yeah. hysteria is describing it, it, someone who is hysterical. We've all heard that term. And of course, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, late 18, early 1900s. It was attributed to women because. You're crazy. We have uteruses and it makes us crazy. Right. So how do you fix that is with a hysterectomy. Uh, so that's where that term comes from. In fact, the term hysteria was uh, stopped being used as a medical diagnosis. Uh, I believe DSM-3, 4, don't quote me on that, is about uh, 
1980 or so uh, was the last time that that was used as a actual definitive medical term. And yet you walk still, around Sa- Salem. You hear it nonstop. Nonstop. I say it. I'll be honest. <laughs> I, it's, it's hard, though, like to make that because it's a word that everyone knows, right. obviously. Of course, most of them don't know where it comes yeah. from. And what you would I, to, see, I, I tell everyone on my tour work. I know you do. Yeah, I'm sure people appreciate it. I do appreciate it, and and I'll try to phase it out. But I'd have to replace it with mass psychogenic illness, which just <laughs> doesn't have the same ring no, to it. No, no, it doesn't. And it's one of these things. So that's one of the reasons, actually, that I do explain it. I'll say mass hysteria, which is not what we use anymore. And the more uh, accurate terminology is mass uh, psychogenic illness, or um, you know, some of the other terms that... Yeah, there's a couple different, yeah, yeah, variations. Mass psychological disorder, psychogenic disorder, uh, these sorts of things. But the idea is it is a mass, so it is spread socially, typically. So it's not a physical illness. It's not like a, you know... uh, a cough or, or, or a, a disease. But it can be. I've got something <laughs> for you. Okay. Traditionally, right? So it's not one of these things um, that is as easily explainable. And one of the very difficult things. So when it comes to science, right? Uh, and and psychology, the, the science of psychology, right? You want to be able to show evidence for and have this study be replicatable and that it can, you can then take that study that someone has done, right? If we're, if we want to talk about, you know, uh, uh, some sort of uh, psycho- psychological idea, right? Whether that is a developmental issue, whether that's a men- mental health issue, whether that's a how we react to certain behaviors issues. If you want to take a random sample size and you can reproduce, and this is any science, and you reproduce that, one of the biggest issues with this idea is that it is almost always in hindsight. You very rarely can study it and because the symptoms are different, because the stressors are different, you can't replicate that and understand that situation better. You just have to say, we have noticed a similar pattern throughout history. Right. I was going to say, you can you can pimp just like ergot poisoning. Like yeah. You can pinpoint all these specific moments throughout time, throughout the world, mm-hmm. where these behaviors start to flourish. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it would have to be a retroactive diagnosis. Which is one of the problems. Um, but we can very easily, like I said when I was talking about Abigail Williams a few minutes ago, we can see all of those external stressors on this young person and how she cracks, and that affects Betty Paris, uh, the conditions they were living in. And then we know that their peers, they were involved with them, they knew what was going on, and it spreads. So you say that we cannot, most of the time, it is retroactive. But this is something that I've been wanting to bring up on the podcast for a <laughs> while, and I just haven't found like the right time. And um, shout out to... Stephanie Boyd, she was on my tour the other night. She okay. she brought up something that reminded me of this and I'll it'll it'll make sense in a couple minutes here. But have you ever heard of the girls over in New York that were experiencing what they believe was a mass psychogenic illness? Was this the the recent TikTok thing or the older cheerleader no, thing? No, yeah, older cheerleader thing. Okay. So back in like two thousand 11. It okay, started yeah. in October 2011. Uh, started with one girl. Yep. Her name was Katie. She wakes up from a nap and she's experiencing like weird muscle spasms. Like she, her 
the way they described it is her head and her neck just kept jutting forward and she really had no control over it to the point where they brought her the ER like she met her family at the ER and the doctor said you're probably having an anxiety attack or maybe she just has tics but then it happens to her friend as well also a cheerleader right I think so so I think and this could be a different thing so correct me if I'm wrong it spreads to multiple members of the team right but it's not just but it but it ends up spreading to all different people okay maybe this. then i'm thinking of a different example um yeah maybe so i i haven't talked about this in in, in years i used to talk about it more i used to cite more examples on, on my tour I've, I've stopped doing that um and i think you said new york i think my example comes from north carolina Ooh, um, now i'm gonna look into that if one. i have to remember and it spreads to multiple members of the team so very similar situation and what solves what fixes their problem is they, they initially had been all sort of hospitalized together and it's not till they are separated <gasps> from each other. That's interesting. That that their signs and symptoms diminish. God, that's so weird. Yeah. So it spreads to her friend and these symptoms start progressing. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're having trouble with speech. They're blacking out. One of them experiences numbness in her legs to the point where she had to be put in a wheelchair. And then... By December, so this starts in October, by mid-December, there were 12 girls total. And by that following spring, which is when it starts to dissipate, the most they had were 18. So 18 girls, cheerleaders, non-cheerleaders, like just, and it's a relatively small town. There's only 7,500 people. This took place in Leroy, New York, so uh, very close to Rochester. My cousins live up there. You should ask them about it. The one thing they did have in common, though, all of them were, or at least most of them, were experiencing some type of major stressor in their life. So the first one, her mom was going for her, like, 13th brain surgery. Another one was being abused by her father. The other one had experienced a death in the family. The experts, because, of course, like, multiple people are descending on this town trying to figure out what's going on, and they concluded that it was a mass psychogenic illness or what they also call conversion disorder. So this was the first time that I had ever heard of it. Basically the body exhibits physical symptoms to express emotional stressors that they may not be able to work out themselves. Absolutely. And it can be contagious. And the way that they described it, I listened to an NPR uh, segment on it. They likened it to almost, you know, when you yawn, and someone else yawns. That's exactly. I mean, that's that's like a very or very, laugh. Laughing is contagious. Laughing contagious. Yeah, very very small, you know, specific instance, but it can grow to so, be a full fledged illness. So we we talked a little bit back when I was in, in school for psychology. Um, you know, someone's mood, someone's attitude. Right. You walk into a room, and uh, like if you just have a generic. So like an office structure is one of the best because that's like just a generic social situation, mm-hmm. right? And someone is either in a good mood or a bad mood, right? They have it and it's distinct, not just like a, like someone's really ha- and they are smile and they are laughing or they are angry and they are upset. That's you can feel it. You can, fe- you can and, see it. And everyone else in that room has a tendency 
to go off. If if you got that person that's in there and you're like, man, you just you had a good there's that is contagious or they're angry and they're grumpy. And now you go home and you're a little more angry and grumpy. And these are just surface level narratives. But that other people affect our mood. And when it becomes serious like this, and especially at a point where collectively there's a significant amount of people, like in 1692, like a bunch of children who are not dealing with their trauma and their stressors, and those stressors, significant amount external. We've covered a significant amount of them. I should stop saying significant. Um, <laughs> we've covered uh, a, a lot of them in this conversation, what those those external stressors are, and one girl cracks, and then another. And that is, it's like getting permission. It was like reading a 21st century version of the trials, like yeah. hearing these symptoms described, muscle tics, spasms, like, hello, this is this sounds like the girls in Salem. And I love this part too. Apparently their symptoms got, they progressed even more, the more the media came in. And it wasn't until it started <laughs> calming down they didn't start calming down until, you know, the attention started calming down. It's like uh, Betty Paris. Here we go. Do you, do you, right, yeah, you take her out of the equation yeah, yeah, and yeah. she is magically cured of all of her Have afflictions. we talked about that before? Not too much, but I think we've mentioned it. Okay, okay. So just to recap real quick, uh, Reverend Paris is so concerned about Betty and not Abigail that he sends her away. to like and she's fine. His, his cousin's uncle's house. like uh-huh. a fan. And coincidentally... I believe he lived on Essex Street. So like in the heart of Salem, geographically, but socially, they were not involved in the goings on. And her behavior dissipates in like a matter of weeks. But of course to them, the devil is no longer interested in her as she is out of that scenario where in which the devil is still interested in Abigail Williams because she is. And we can look back with hindsight and more knowledge and more education and be like, no, no. You took her out of the toxic environment, so therefore... And you took her away from all of her friends that are doing, that are, are feeding into this behavior. They fed into each other. Yeah. They're children. They're children. Teenage girls. You can't sit with us. Exactly. Attention. I think that's, that's another thing that people oftentimes bring up in um, my tours is, you know, these girls, they're young girls. They are living in a world where they are very much suppressed. We talked. We talked about patriarchal society. Imagine what it was like to be a young Puritan child. So I, I start off talking about teenagers, and teenagers are, are horrific creatures. Um, <laughs> and 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 then people are like, and I'm almost like, listen, I'm the eldest of four boys. You've met all my brothers. Yeah. And I'm like, sorry, mom. Yeah, I was gonna say you're you're <laughs> blessed, mom. Hi, uh, mom. Right. Sorry, my bad. Didn't mean to get arrested again. Um, but it's tough to be a teenager. But when, when, when we look at the idea of attention and positive reinforcement, and then I, I, so I talk about teenagers, but then I talk to adults. And I was like, we all like it when people pay attention to us. You're, someone texts you back. Someone calls you. They're looking at you when they're talking to you. We all appreciate that. And you can kind of see it click. And they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Pay attention to your kids or they'll start accusing you of witchcraft. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think that's a good little overview. What do you think? I think that covers pretty much all of it. Um, 
I wouldn't say all of it. It's complicated. I was going to say, but this is just kind of a brief overview yeah. of our... We, we could go into probably any of these specific topics for an entire episode. Oh, of course, because there are several books written on yeah. all of these. Yeah. So we'll plug all of those in the show notes. If you're interested in picking up any of these, I strongly recommend. Um, of course, you know, our podcast is fun and I love doing what we do and I love our tours, but we can only give such a small sliver of information. There are folks that devote their entire careers to studying this topic. But hour and a half, two hour tour? You just don't got the time. Nope. But that's why we have a podcast. And that's why there are books out there. Yes. So pick one up and educate yourself. But with that... You gotta go give your last tour. I gotta go give my last tour. So uh, thank you all. Uh... We gave you a little spoiler. What's coming up next? Stay tuned. We've got we've got some some cool stuff coming the next week or two. We should have a Patreon announcement coming to you next week, yep. as well as some merch stuff in the works as well. Yep. Uh, so obviously, merch link in bio. We're going to be getting some hoodies, long sleeve shirts coming up in the winter time frame, so you can be comfy in your your say on the podcast winter merch. Maybe we can do socks. <gasps> socks would be cool. Uh, socks. I don't know. I'll have to look. Oh. And I will, I will sort out international shipping one way or the other. It's that is, November now. You said you get it in that November. Is, that is one of top my top priorities. I, I hear you all. Uh, otherwise, thanks for listening. See you later.